the person that Tom described uh, couldn't make it today. <laughs> um, so I just want to say good morning. So that's the way it's going to be. Um, Tom mentioned this is the last in an eight-week series on women in the Bible, uh, which has really been a, a really kind of neat opportunity for us to shine a light on a view and a perspective that, you know, really goes kind of unheard of in our culture, and not just of women, uh, but of Middle Eastern women. And, you know, so what if those views were presented every week by a series of old white men? Um, you know, <laughs> that's what I am too, so we're going to have one more week of that, and it's okay. We can laugh at that. If, if you don't see it, then you'll never change it. So, um, but it is great. And actually, that's unfair, right, because uh, Brian's a young white man, so we're making progress. The text that we're going to talk about today is uh, from Luke 7, and it's very often referred to as the, the sinful woman at the banquet or the sinful woman who anointed Jesus or the sinful woman forgiven. I have a question, especially for the ladies uh, today. Is that ridiculous? I mean, is it ridiculous? Because this story, where it happens at Simon's house. It's at Simon's banquet. Simon's almost the only person who talks besides Jesus. Simon is the only one who sins in the story. And we name the story the sinful woman, right? That's how we remember it. That just tells me that we are very, very comfortable, you know, slapping labels on people. Right? The only person that I know that I'm not comfortable doing that is myself. Right? I extend to myself a tremendous amount of grace. Uh, I like to see myself as, if not the hero in my story, well, at least the victim, you know, but never the villain. Uh, it was a few years ago, there was a power outage in St. Louis, especially in New City. And my family kind of stuck it out for a couple of days before we realized, you know, this is terrible. But my brother-in-law had always said, you know, you guys should come visit, you should come visit. He's in Indiana. So I said, you know what, let's do him a favor. Let's, <laughs> let's all go, the seven of us, or however it was at the time, let's go visit. So we called him up, we made the plans, we came. And it was great for, you know, there's a couple of days, but the power outage lasted longer than we thought. And we ended up being there, I think, a little over a week. And so as we're going through this time, I'm starting to feel a little, you know, self-conscious that, you know, we're, we're kind of being a burden to, to Mitch, my brother-in-law. And so... I started looking for ways that I could make this a, you know, a beneficial experience. You know, what can I do to make this a positive? And Mitch is constantly like, you know, just relax. Don't worry about it. He'd go to work. He'd say, just enjoy. You know, enjoy the pool. Have fun. I, I couldn't sit with that. And so I, I saw, you know, he has, a, he has this pride and joy. It's his front lawn. It's amazing. Uh, it's perfect and immaculate. And this is in the summertime. It's very hot. And so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut the grass for him so that when he gets home, it'll be done. And I'm very persnickety too, so don't think I'm gonna do a sloppy job, like I can do it as well as Mitch. So I, I wait till he leaves, I don't tell anybody, you know, because I, if, I, if I tell him, he'll say no. I go down to his tool shed, it's locked. I don't call him for the key, I just snoop around the house till I find it, get it unlocked, pull all the equipment out. There's this massive mower that looks like, you know, he got it off of a golf course. It's just, I've never seen anything like it. You know, and like, this is typical Mitch. So I'm like, I, I can figure this out. So I figure out how to pull start it. I push it right down the middle of his front lawn. And as I'm going, I look and I see that behind it is kind of like throwing out bits of turf and grass. And, and it's like, I'm like, is this my imagination? Does it look worse than, you know, what I'm about to roll over? So I, I just kind of push on. It's like, oh, it'll figure itself out. It'll kind of, you know... So I push it on down one, and I push it all the way back the other, and I stop, and I look at what I've done. 
There's this strip running down his lawn, and it, it doesn't look like the way when Mitch does it. So I think, you know, I'm not going to call him. I'll just, I'm just going to look online, and I'll figure out how this thing works. I'm obviously doing something wrong. So I go, and I you know, check online. Immediately, I, I realize two things. Uh, one is that this thing is a snowblower. And <laughs> that's, why, that's why it was having such a, such a struggle with the lawn. And the second thing is, I kind of, it just hit me. This whole time, I've seen myself as this victim, right? Stupid power company. And that, uh, that I've come, and I've, I'm being a blessing to my brother-in-law's family. You know, I'm trying to do a nice thing, and it's like, Things just keep making it difficult. And really, I realize at that point, as I'm looking at what was his lawn, I realize <laughs> we invited ourselves over. We descended like locusts on his food stores. We uh, destroyed his yard. We monopolized his evenings. I, I never listened to him when he told me what he'd like me to do. And I was too stubborn, you know, and too proud to just be in his debt. And it just hit me. You know, I saw this very clear picture of myself that I am the, I'm the villain here, not the victim. So we feel very confident, you know, when we're judging somebody else, like the sinful woman, easy to do. But for ourselves, we want to extend a lot of grace, and we want to see ourselves in a very positive light. If somebody is late, you know, um, the problem is they're inconsiderate. If I'm late, it's traffic, you know. Uh, If somebody loses something, I'm like, gee, what a scatterbrain. You know, I mean, so disorganized. But if I lose something, it's like, I can, where are my keys? Who took my keys? And if my, key, if my kids say, very reasonably, my kids will say, well, Dad, you're the only one that uses them. And I can say, That's, that, I, that does not matter. I put them right here. And I can say that with complete confidence as a man who has never lost or misplaced anything my entire life. Right? And I put the blame on them. So this, this image that we create of ourselves, that we sort of inflate, it's very comforting, it's very attractive, and what we love about it is that it makes us feel better, and at the same time, it allows us to feel superior to other people. So it's kind of a double bonus, and that's why we, I think we like it so much. But the problem with it is that these, these inflated selves don't really need what it is that Jesus offers, which is forgiveness. So when we adopt this inflated self-image, we find ourselves responding to Jesus not with love, but indifference. And so in this text today, we're going to see how Jesus himself responds to just this type of person. We're going to start in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I can look forward now. It's awesome. Uh, on the, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I actually want to stop there in the middle of our story because uh, we need to answer a question. The question is, How did this stranger get under the table at this private dinner party? Um, And what's happening here is this is a public feast. And we've actually got a a, a picture. So this is is the best I could find. It kind of shows all the things I want to show. But this is is a public feast. 
A public feast would be, uh, and this, is, this was common in the Jewish world because of the influence of the Greco-Roman world. You'd have a feast where a leading man in the community would say to his friends, come over, let's exchange ideas, let's debate, you know, let's, let's exercise our intellects, and we'll invite some uh, visitors to kind of do that with us. And what was interesting about this is that they would also have visitors come. Now, they weren't going to be a part of the meal, but they would, they would sort of line the back of the room, and the idea was that they could benefit from this amazing display of you know, manners and intellect and debate. So you would have the servants and the visitors, the spectators really around the back of the room, and the men who were dining would sit with their heads towards the table and their feet towards the back on couches. At these types of gatherings, just like any gathering, there's, there's certain rules of hospitality, and we have them today. So somebody comes to your door, right? You open the door for them, uh, you give them a handshake or a hug, depending on how well you know them. You invite them in. Um, you take their coat, right? Maybe you offer them something to drink and a place to sit. If any of those things are ignored in certain situations, you get a very clear message, right? So, like, if you're invited into somebody's house for, like, a, uh, you know, something in the evening and you come over and they, they bring you in and, and they sit down and you're still holding your coat in your hand, there's a signal there, right? They're letting you know, I, 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 you're not staying long, you know? So... <laughs> So for Simon, the same thing's happening because there were certain expectations for this meal. Uh, there's three things in particular, uh, and, I, and they're listed here in how common they were. The first was foot washing. Foot washing is like an absolute necessity when you have people over to your house. Uh, it, that's necessary in a world where you get a combination of you know, sandals without socks and animals without pants. You're going to have <laughs> problems. The second most common thing is uh, a, a greet with a kiss. So if it's your equal, it might be a kiss on the cheek. If maybe you're a student and this is your teacher, you might kiss him on the hand. But usually you gave somebody a kiss when they came in, especially if it was kind of a formal visit. It's kind of like our handshake or a hug. And then last, there was the, an anointing. Now, this was more rare. This isn't something that happened all the time. But when it did happen, it was a sign of, of pretty uh, great respect and honor. And when it was done, it was always done with olive oil, and it was always done on the head of the person visitor, visiting. Now, Simon withholds all three of these from Jesus. Uh, this is one of those insults that's meant to be felt. And it's meant to be perceived by everybody in that room, and I'm sure it was. Everyone would be waiting to see, well, now what's Jesus going to do? You know, maybe he'll just walk out. Or maybe he'll throw a fit. You know, this will be good. Or maybe... He'll, he'll, he'll humble himself and be put in his place by Simon, and that'll kind of be the end of that as far as this Jesus thing goes. So the people around are waiting to see what will happen, and the people at the dinner are doing the same thing. Now, this is where the story gets a little surprising, because Jesus really doesn't do anything at first. It's this woman who's uninvited, who's like hanging out on the side of the wall. She inserts herself into this dinner in a way that's not appropriate, right? And she defends Jesus, she addresses the insult herself. Um, it's possible that she meant to anoint Jesus when she came because she's carrying that ointment. Um, but it's also possible just because of her profession, or at least her traditional profession, that she had the ointment with her because it's something they carried around their necks. But in either case, she certainly didn't intend to go through this entire process because she brought no water, she brought no bowl, she brought no towel. Um, so this is something that generates in her sort of spontaneously. And what's interesting, too, about that is what she doesn't do, because it's what I think I would have done if I, if I felt the way she did. She doesn't attack Simon, 
right? And you would think, oh, well, you know, she's a woman in that day. She wouldn't attack Simon. It's unheard of. Well, that's true. But so is what she did. Uh, so, you know, one thing you can't say about this woman is you can't say she lacks courage. Um, so I think that she certainly would have had the courage to do it. And I think that there's a level that that would have felt kind of amazing for her. But she's, you know, she's not me. She's not the type of woman that would do this because that would bring the spotlight onto herself and pull it away from Jesus. And she's just not the type of person to do that. She wouldn't be comfortable with that. Instead, she just very humbly, you know, gives to Jesus what he is owed and she focuses on him. And she gives him room to respond to his critics, right? Because he can do it far better than she can. And what we're going to see is that's exactly what he does. Uh, Starting in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this, this display that the woman was putting on, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now you see, Simon has a concern about this woman because Simon is a Pharisee. He's one of those leading men of the community. And as a Pharisee, he has a a very sort of zealous concern for the law being upheld, especially when it comes to cleanliness and morality. So this bothers him. Now, some parables that we hear in the Bible are meant to be, you know, very mysterious, where, you know, we spend long Bible studies kind of debating them. We're all checking our footnotes and getting conflicting stories about what it means. Um, the sower and the seed might be an example where the people initially hearing that might be a little confused by what they were hearing, and some understood it, and some just didn't, and that was okay. But there are some parables where the very purpose is for the hearer to immediately understand. An example of that is when Nathan speaks to David. When he tells the story about the rich man who took the poor man's sheep, that's not a riddle for David, right? He's supposed to immediately get it, and he does. Right, he's, as soon as Nathan presents this picture of this rapacious, you know, pitiless, rich man, he says to David, David, you are the man. And he doesn't mean like, you are the man. He means, you know, <laughs> you are that man. And David immediately recognizes his true self there, right? The, the image breaks, and he realizes that who he is, and he realizes the depth of his sin, so the same thing needs to kind of happen to Simon. Now, in the story, there's, there's two debtors. So we, we can kind of follow this through. Simon is the, is the debtor who owes a little. The woman is the debtor who owes a lot. Now, even though it's a very simple parable, it is still easy to misunderstand it. We could look at that and say, oh, Simon or people like him, these religious leaders, have very little sin. But to do that, it would require that we believe that Jesus, in looking at Simon, sees very little sin when he sees a man who's insulting his guests, who's judging others, who's ignoring the repentance in this woman, uh, who is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit in her, who is rejecting the Messiah himself. So when we look at this in the context of all of Scripture, we would have, we'd feel pretty safe saying, no, these are not little sins in Jesus' mind. So that's not the point. I think it's reasonable to say that the point that Jesus is making 
He's making it in a way and in terms that Simon can grasp because he wants Simon to understand. He's trying to bring Simon to the truth right now. And so he does it in a way Simon can grasp, and he does it in a way that fits kind of Simon's perception of the world and himself in it. But it doesn't just leave him there. It sort of guides him towards the truth. And now we're going to see if, that, if it works, starting in verse 43. Simon answered, uh, in answer to Jesus' question, who would have loved more? He answers, the one, I suppose, for whom you canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Next slide, thanks. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and she's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Well, Simon obviously misread what was happening around him when he, when he thought that thought about the woman and about Jesus. But it seems like the logic of this parable, as simply as it's presented, is, is sort of inescapable to him. And you know that he knows what this means, because of the way he answers, when he sort of equivocates in his response, he, he answers correctly, but he's, he throws in a, you know, I suppose, you know, like this is hard to figure out, you know, so he's like, I, I suppose it would be the one that owed him more. That tells us that Simon kind of knows where this is going. He's kind of putting the pieces together, and he knows what Jesus is just kind of, kind of affirmed for him is that the coldness that he's exhibiting towards Jesus this is not out of a wealth of righteousness or a zeal for the law. It's just a lack of love. And Simon's self-image at that point is just blown up. It's like, you know, when I was standing there looking at that lawn, it's like, boom. You know, and you realize you're just not the person you thought you were. <laughs> Simon is, is, at this point, he's grasping the truth. It's his you-are-the-man moment but he's left hanging there. Um, what I love about this is, though, is that Jesus is showing such incredible, sharp truth with this man, but also such amazing grace. He could have skipped the parable, right? He could have jumped right to the Simon, you this and she that, you did this and she that. That is a devastating comparison that he makes. And it would have put Simon in his place, taught him a lesson very appropriately, and it would have been great instruction for the crowd. But, uh, and it would have been very satisfying, at least if, if it were me, that's what I would have done. Um, but Jesus has more on his mind with Simon than teaching a lesson, right? That's what makes Jesus, Jesus. The parable allows Simon to reason his way towards a conclusion. And if anybody in this room, like myself, kind of identifies with Simon, you know how important that is when you're sort of in a disagreement with somebody that they sort of give you the space and they give you the ammunition that you can sort of work your way to the conclusion because they're doing more than just winning an argument, right? They're winning you over. And that's what Simon's doing. And, and in doing that and allowing Simon to grasp the truth for himself, what he's doing is he's creating this, this little moment where he and Simon are actually in agreement. And I love that the last thing that Jesus says to Simon when they are looking at each other eye to eye, the last thing he says is, you judge rightly, Simon. 
So he, he, that's an invitation, not a rejection. Now, when Jesus does start that devastating comparison, he does something very important that, again, shows an amazing grace mixed with this truth. He turns towards the woman. And I think that's really important because when he does that, it has to change the tone of what he's saying. You know, because if he was facing Simon, it would be more of a, Simon, you know, you never gave me water. But this woman, you know, she never stopped wetting my feet with her tears. But he's looking at the woman. So it's hard to imagine him sort of shouting angrily while he's looking in this woman's face. So I imagine that this is really, read correctly, this is primarily a praise of this woman. And Simon just serves a purpose here as a negative example. That's his job right now. So this, this care for Simon, where he mixes this very hard truth, but with this amazing grace. You know, as I said, what, what makes Jesus so unique? He, he wants Simon too. There's very few people, maybe nobody in this room, that wants Simon too. But he does. He's the only person in the story that sees the woman and Simon clearly. And he loves them both. So the question is, when you look at the story, when I look at the story, who do we see? I think a lot of Christians, when they look at the story, what they want to see or what they choose to see is they see in this woman a Christian disciple. But when non-Christians especially look at this story, they look at Simon and they say, there's your Christian. And you'd say, well, why is that? Well, Simon is religious. Right? He's respected in his community. He's active in his church. He feels superior to others. Uh, he judges his inferiors. Uh, he separates himself away from those that he thinks are unworthy. Uh, he does all these things while at the same time totally misunderstanding you know, Jesus. That's a Christian to a lot of people. And so I, you know, if, if the question is, is that fair? No. No, it's not fair because it's overgeneralized. But I tell you what would be fair is for each one of us individually to simply look at Simon and look at the woman, and instead of asking who's who's the Christian, just ask who are you in this story? And so what I did was I just tried to put together a little summary of what do I see in the woman and what do I see in Simon? I try to be very fair and I try not to pull things in that weren't there so we could look at it and just honestly say what do we see? So when we look at Simon and the woman, you're the woman If you're seeking Jesus out of desperation, if you have a keen awareness and sorrow over your sin, and if you feel humbly unworthy to be in his presence, I mean, that's why she approaches Jesus at his feet, right? She doesn't go to to his face. She goes to his feet and anoints him. But if you're the man, you're probably seeking Jesus more out of curiosity. You're an asset to your family, your community, and your church. And you feel confident in your ability to judge others' hearts. And not only that, it probably gives you a little bit of comfort when you do that. And again, if you're the woman, much of your sin is exposed and difficult to hide. You feel marginalized by a lack of wealth or influence. Your approach to Jesus is one of emotional, unselfconscious adoration. That means when you're in church, you know, you would, what I would say, you're making a fool of yourself, right? You're just kind of going crazy. But if you're the man... Much of your sin is hidden from public view. That's what makes repentance so hard for us. Your social circle is stable, it's respected, and it's accepted. And your approach to Jesus is one of rational, guarded evaluation, meaning you're not much of a, you know, put your hands up in church kind of a person. So when you look at those two, if you say to yourself, well, 
I do see in that list of Simon, I do see some of the things I do. But that's not who I am. That's just how I act. Well, I'd say that the truth that we all then need to sort of confront is that how you are is who you are. And this is really not about identifying, you know, little areas of improvement that we can make in our life. Like the point of this uh, discussion, this sermon is not, you know, you just need to be more considerate when people are late. Or you just need to be, you know, more pleasant when you lose your keys. These are not little nips and tucks at this beautiful picture that we're creating that we call ourselves. This is, this is radical, what Jesus is showing us. He's asking us to come to grips with the very messy reality of who we actually are. Uh, it's kind of like when Nathan says to David, you know, you got to face the facts here. You are that man. He didn't say, David, you share some of the traits of that man. Or David, I've seen you act like that man. He just says, you are that man. Face it. So, if you think of Jesus more as a place where you get your questions answered than when you, where you get your sins forgiven, I have bad news. You are that man. And if you are comfortable judging others, not only for what they do, but even for why they're doing it, then you are the man. And if you're willing to invite yourself over and destroy a person's yard <laughs> and feel like the victim, then you are most definitely the man. This is important because I think how we see ourselves affects how we approach Jesus. This question gets asked, I hear this a lot, what would you do if Jesus came back today? Uh, I'm a dad, so I hear this question a lot. Um, This question especially fascinates one of my sons, Daniel. And what I love about it is whenever he will ask me this question, what would you do if Jesus came back today, dad? He has a certain gleam in his eye. Like what he's saying is, you know when that happens, you're not going to be the boss anymore, right? (laughs) I like to think that if Jesus came back today, that I would collapse, you know, at his feet, that I would become undone, that I would cry, that I would become very emotional. In other words, what I'm claiming is that if Jesus comes back today, I'm going to act exactly like the woman in this story. The question is, is, Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable for me to assume that I can act like Simon every day of my life, but then as soon as it counts, I can start acting like the woman? I don't think that's true. I think that's me selling myself that false image. So you hear this, and and the question I had as I was thinking through this is, all right, I need some good news, you know? Uh, And for me... The good news is that the answer, for any of us that are Simons, the answer is that is not, you know, just become sinless like that woman. Because, of course, we know that she was full of sin. Uh, And it's like Sarah prayed earlier this morning. We We could work all our lives trying to become perfect. The answer is, though, like the woman. And that's just to be intimately acquainted with the very depth of our sin. So that when we respond to Jesus, when we encounter him, our response isn't curiosity or uh, interest or indifference, but just an overwhelming love and gratitude for the burden that he's lifted from us. And actually, if you think about it, if you boil it down, the difference between Simon and the woman is one of interest versus commitment. You know, Simon's interested. 
He has questions. Uh, but for the woman, it's commitment. And I think of commitment as like um, when you rely on something to the point of vulnerability. That's commitment. It's so like for this podium. I have not tried this one. But when I do this, you know, I, I'm relying on this podium. If that podium is not reliable, if it breaks, I go down with it. So I'm, I'm committed. And this woman commits herself to Jesus. What she does in that room when she cries and wipes her hair on his feet and makes a spectacle of herself, I mean, can you imagine what she was feeling at that moment? Can you imagine the fear that she must have had wondering how these men will react? And not only that, but I think wondering how will Jesus react? What if Jesus is offended? What if he pulls his feet away? You know, what if they shoo me out of the room? It takes amazing courage for what she did. So, if instead of fitting the profile of the man, if you fit the profile of the woman, you know, what I just want to say is, um, one, I am so very glad that you are here at Green Tree Church. Uh, it takes such amazing courage, I think, for you to walk through these doors. Uh, in the story, this woman had one Simon to deal with. You've got a room full. Uh, that's a challenge. Um, I think, though, that if you, if you realize how out of place she felt in this story, how uncomfortable she was, she did not even have a place at the table, but for the presence of Jesus, right, who made her feel and know that she was the most honored guest in that room. And so I would just pray that the presence of Jesus in this church does the very same thing for you. I want to finish appropriately, I think, by just focusing on Jesus and his last words and some of the things that he challenges us to believe, starting in verse 48. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, Jesus is making a lot of claims in this story, and a lot of them right here at the end. One of the things he claims, one of the things he insists on, is our equality, right? Jesus is speaking to us from the world where culturally women were seen as nearly invisible, certainly not as people, more just for the function that they performed. You see that in the laws and the custom of that day, whether it has to do with uh, inheritance of property or with divorce or with dress codes or with rules about speaking in public. Clearly, women and men were not seen as equal. Even in this story itself, Luke chooses not to retain the name or the people that pass the story to Luke. And so what we've preserved in this is only what she was, not who she was. As a matter of fact, if anybody has a Bible and you have the little thing above it that says the story of the sinful woman, you should just cross it out and write courageous. That's okay. That part of the Bible is not inspired, so you can change it. <laughs> so Jesus is smashing these gender norms, right? He first, he kind of indirectly compares Simon and the woman, right? He says, you're a debtor and you're a debtor. And he lets them kind of like figure it out. And Simon, this is a little insulting for Simon. He's a wealthy man. He's not a debtor. But then the second part is, well, you're comparing me to this woman. And Jesus, uh, it's kind of like Jesus saying, does that offend you? Well, how about this? And then he compares Simon directly to the woman. 
And not only that, but enlisting all of Simon's faults and all of her praises, and he asks the people that are around, would you do me a favor? Would you picture these two people side by side? And would you just sort of meditate on how much better this woman has done than Simon has? This is excruciating for Simon. And what Jesus is asking them to do in this male-dominated world is almost as shocking as what the woman has done when he says, listen, I'm going to lift her up. I'm going to compare her to this wealthy, respected man, even though she's a poor, outcast woman. And he shatters the picture that they have of this woman. And he insists that everyone look at her in a new way, basically in the same way that he sees her. Kind of a side note, if you struggle with seeing the equality in, in everybody, regardless of their, you know, their race or their gender or their wealth, then I have bad news, you are the man. Jesus also, in addition to insisting on our equality, he insists on his own superiority. And he does this in four ways that I'm going to touch on just very briefly. One is he accepts worship. Typically, if someone was going to be anointed, it would be on the head with olive oil. But Jesus is anointed on the feet with perfume. This is like a double intensification that goes beyond the norm. And it's something that would only be done for royalty if that. If you add to it the washing and the tears and the emotional outpouring, I mean, this is clearly an act of worship that this woman is performing. And Jesus accepts it. In a culture where accepting worship was forbidden because worship is for God alone. But Jesus says in accepting it, that's appropriate. Another thing in this culture is that there was the belief that sins could only be forgiven ultimately by God. And we believe the same thing. All sin is ultimately against God. So ultimately, it is God alone that can forgive sin. You may not believe that sitting here today, but it's important that you know that Jesus did. So when he is pronouncing forgiveness, he's also announcing his divinity, right? He's making that claim at the same time. Third, he assumes the role of the lender. Now, this one's a little more subtle, but there's only three people in this story, and there's only three people in the parable, and we've already clearly identified who the two debtors are, so that just leaves Jesus as the lender, or more more appropriately, we would say the giver, because he doesn't ask for anything in return. He forgives the debt. What's interesting about this to me is that there's one lender who's owed by both people, so everything that they have, they owe to one person. The other thing that's interesting about this is that the word that's used in the story when we hear the debt, in Aramaic, the words debt and sin are the same. That's why when you hear the Our Father, sometimes you hear, you know, forgive us our debts, sometimes you forgive us our sins. So basically, Jesus is telling a story where you've got two people, both freely forgiven for their debt of sin that was owed to one man. And Jesus is saying, that's me. Uh, that is so clearly a picture of God, and Jesus is assuming that role. Finally, Jesus exchanges condemnation for forgiveness because he is the Messiah. At the beginning of the story, remember it was the woman that was being condemned for her actions. It was the woman that people were murmuring and thinking about. Jesus steps up and defends her. And in doing that, the crowd turns on Jesus, right? By the end, they're not murmuring about the woman. They're murmuring about Jesus. They're not scandalized by the woman. They're scandalized by what Jesus has said. And in return for what he takes on, What he does, he doesn't ask of anything for the woman. He just offers something, and that's forgiveness. In what he says to her, he completely restores her to her community. And that's, by the way, Simon's job. 
But Jesus takes that on. And he makes her a new person. So, if you've, sort of as we've walked through this, if you're seeing yourself in Simon's shoes just a little bit, I would say that's good news. Because that is what Luke and the Holy Spirit intended. Uh, Because just like the prodigal son story, where it ended with the older son standing on the porch, trying to decide whether to go in or not, and the story just stops right there. We don't know what happened. The same thing happens here. We left Simon. The last we heard of Simon was he was standing in front of Jesus, and he was grasping the truth. He was affirming it, but he wasn't embracing it. And so like Simon, we have encountered this same Jesus, and he has blown up this self-image that we've tried to create for ourselves. And what we see now is not a pretty picture. But you know what's amazing is that is not a cause for despair because Jesus does not reject Simon, right? He's inviting Simon, just like he invites us. He's just like that father in prodigal son story that wants both boys. He wants Simon and that woman. So what will Simon say? And what will we say? Maybe we'll be offended by what Jesus has shown us. Or maybe we'll be transformed. Maybe we're going to hold something back. Or maybe we'll choose to drop at his feet and worship. Let's pray. Father, you see us for exactly who we are. You know our hearts, and yet you choose to love us, whether we are Simon or the woman. Help us to see what you see so that we can understand the very depth of our need. But also, please, Lord, help us to feel what you feel so that we know the breadth and strength of your love. May your spirit be with us right now enlarging our hearts for you so that our worship right now is real and emotional and vibrant and unselfconscious like that woman. May our voices raise up in praise of your grace which flows down. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.